Father, we come before you and we just thank you for Jesus. We, we thank you that you have revealed to us Jesus through the Gospel of John, that he is the great I am, that he is the light of the world, that he is the door for the sheep, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the bread of heaven, that he is the resurrection and the life, that before Abraham was, he is. Father, we thank you that, that he not only was with you, but that he is in essence God himself, and that he came to reveal his glory full of grace and truth. We thank you for the fullness of the glory of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. And this is what we want, Lord. We don't want to have these theological truths in a compartment in our brains, but we want the reality to abide in our hearts. And so we pray for the power of the fullness of Christ to be in us this morning, that we would know His love, that we would feel His love, that we would experience His love, not only vertically, but horizontally with each other, that we might be the very testimony of the power of Christ in this world. And we can only do that through Your Word. And so we ask You right now, to please bless the preaching and teaching and meditation on your powerful word as we behold the glory of Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has, or I don't want any. Those are the words of A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer lived from 1897 to 1963. He was born in Pennsylvania. He was born again in Akron, Ohio. He um, was walking home from work one day at the age of 17. He only had a sixth grade education. But he's walking home from work one day at the age of 17, and he actually heard a street preacher. A man was on a street corner proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that street preacher said this, if you don't know how to be saved, just call on God. And so Tozer walked all the way home, climbed up into his attic, and talked with God, and God saved him that day. Now, Tozer was born again at that moment, and he gave his life to three things, and he would give this testimony Two people. So he would, he would verify this reality. He gave his life to prayer and study and proclamation. Prayer, study, and proclamation. What he heard from God, he actually spoke to men and women through preaching and writing. All right? And this is what he wrote. Listen to the book. Listen to the titles of the books. And this is only just a sampling. But the titles of the books that A.W. Tozer wrote. You're going to find a theme. The pursuit of God. Worship. Prayer. The counselor. The attributes of God. The knowledge of the holy. Just, just it's these books, they're, they're written, some of the subtitles are Man Drawing Closer to God. The reason we were created is worship, communing with God in everything, cultivating sweet relationship with God, a journey into the Father's heart. I mean, we could go on and on about what his passion was. This is the thing. Tozer delighted in God and wanted more of that delight in his life. 
That's what Tozer wanted. He delighted in God, and he wanted more of that delight in his life. And this is my question to you this morning. What do you want? What do you want in your life? Okay, if Tozer's desire was to delight in God and to press into more and more of that delight in Him, if somebody stopped you on the street corner and asked you, what do you want more than anything else in this world? What would be your natural response? Listen, this is the thing. Not only did Tozer want to delight in God and commune with God, he wanted others to delight in God and commune with God, but not that, not just that at least, I want you to know that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, wants nothing less than that in your life. He wants you not just merely to want to commune with God and to delight in God, but he wants you more than anything else to have a oneness and a communion with Almighty God that that ascends into the very heavenlies, as it were, that you might know something of the pleasure that the Trinity has within themselves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And anything less than that is falling short of the privilege that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Turn to John 17. We will finish up the high priestly prayer this morning. In John 17, verses 20 through 26, as you will recall, it is the Passion Week. It's Thursday night. Jesus has spent time in the upper room with his disciples. He has served them. They have celebrated the Last Supper. He has gone on to teach them many truths regarding the gospel and regarding following him and living for him and teaching him and awaiting his his glory. And then he pauses to pray. And the Apostle John, many decades later, has recorded the very prayer that Jesus prayed. And this is an amazing opportunity that, that we have is to peer into the prayer life of the Son to the Father. Think about the privilege that this is. Like if you ever heard of somebody who really walks closely with God, if you've ever heard a a very godly man or woman who communes with God on a regular basis, somehow you got to hear them pray, either in a small group prayer time or a one-on-one prayer time, or maybe you just accidentally walked by a a room in, in which this person was praying and you got to hear the content of that prayer, what you are swept away with, what you are impressed by, what you are moved by is the communion that that person has with God. It's like they really know God. Think about the privilege that we have right now to see the prayer life of the eternal Son to the eternal Father communing with one another. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He then prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. He is the great high priest who passionately pleads for the salvation of sinners and and, and the, the witness of the disciples. And then he now prays for all who would ever believe in him through the apostles' witness. Let's read verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, completely one, so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. First thing let's do is let's just keep our eyes on the text and let's walk through this verse by verse so that we can understand these phrases, these purposes, these, these requests that Jesus makes. Okay, starting with verse 20. I don't ask for these only. That is, I don't ask for just these these apostles, the, the disciples who already believe in me. I have just asked for them. I've just requested for you to sanctify them in the truth, for you to keep them from the evil one, for you to guard them and their souls. But I don't ask for them alone. I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word. That is through the preaching of their word and through the writing that they will do that will ultimately be canonized in the New Testament. So everybody who will hear the apostles preach the gospel and everybody who will read and then hear what is read and hear it through preaching, anybody who will ever believe in my name through the apostles' witness in preaching and writing of the New Testament, that's who I'm praying for right now. And so if you've ever asked the question, does Jesus ever mention me personally in the Bible? The answer to that question is absolutely yes, right here in verse 20. Here you are. You are in the Bible. Verse 21. This is what he says. I ask for them that they all, every one of them, not some of them, not merely the spiritually elite, not, not the, the special forces of the Christians, but that they all may be one. And this is staggering. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. What is the nature of the oneness that the Son prays to the Father for all of us who will believe? The nature of it, the, the quality of it, is nothing less than the nature and the quality of the oneness that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. That's staggering. But it, it continues. That's not just one statement that he makes. He says that they also may be in us. So there, there is some type of mutual communion 
that believers have in the Father and the Son that the Father and Son have enjoyed for all eternity. And this is the purpose, he says. Why do I want this oneness? Why do I want this unity? Why do I want this intimacy of the the believers in us? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. There is a missional purpose to the oneness that Jesus prays for, for you and I. There is an evangelistic purpose to it. There is a winsome purpose to it. Jesus wants the world to see and feel the intimacy that believers have with God vertically and with each other horizontally so that when they see it and feel it, they want it. And then he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now he's already mentioned glory multiple times in in this passage, in this prayer. And the beauty about God and the beauty about God's language is that there are nuances and, and, dynam- and a dynamic nature to language. So that this glory right here that he's referring to in 22 is not just a, a blunt glory where we say it's the infinite beauty uh, and excellence of Almighty God. Well, yes, that is God's glory. God's glory is his infinite beauty and excellence. We can say that. We could even say that that's the definition of the glory of God. It is His infinite beauty and excellence. However, there's a nuanced nature to what He's saying here and what He's asking for because He says, The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Because this is the thing. There were a few moments in Jesus' ministry where people did see the transcendent beauty and infinite excellence of Jesus, like at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured. His face shined like the sun. They beheld it, and they were amazed by it. Even something of of that sense when Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water and the Spirit descended down like a dove and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There was a sense in which the people who were there could sense and see and feel the dynamic excellence of an infinite God. Okay, But that is not what Jesus is referring to here, at least not primarily. Look, he says, the glory that you have given me I've given to them. Well, what what has He given to them? He's given to them the glory of His love. The glory of His love. And that's going to be seen right down here as we continue to read. But, But this is what we need to understand. There is something about the glory of God that is that is interlaced with and filled up with divine love for sinners like you and me. Listen to what he says. He says, that they may be one even as we are one. Same request as really above. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. All right. Please don't get tripped up here. Let's let's focus in on what Jesus is saying here because this is what's happening. The Father has set His love on the Son and in the Son. There is is a real sense, there, there is an absolute sense in which 
The Father above is filled up with with love, infinite love, eternal love, affection, a a passionate love that, that is His nature. God is love, John tells us in his epistle. And And God sets that love on His Son Jesus. And and singularly on His Son Jesus. Because His Son is His beloved. Because His Son is perfect and holy and righteous and pure and stainless and spotless and, and excellent and beautiful and merciful and compassionate. I mean, His Son is the perfect Son. And so the Father places His love on His beloved Son and places His love in His beloved Son. And it's like He... he, he He puts the fullness of His love on His own beloved Son because His own beloved Son is most certainly worthy of that love. And Jesus turns around and He prays that the love that is in me from you, all of those who will ever believe through the word of the apostles will have the experience and the blessing of that same love. This, um, we have to ask the question, how could that possibly be? Now, I want to help us here for just a moment. I think it'll probably be like a three-minute little little aside, but I think it'll be helpful. Take your Bibles, hold, hold in John 17. Take your Bibles and go back to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. So the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking to his people. And he says, beginning in verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Well now, who in the world is the Lord talking about right here? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, his servant. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness, and catch it right here, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. My glory I give to no other. Now, 
Jesus has prayed in John chapter 17, right here in verse 23 and, and, and so forth and 24. He says, I desire that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. And then up above, he says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. And, and we have to say, but, but didn't the Lord say, my glory I give to another? And Jesus says, my glory I've given to them. Your glory I've given to them. Is this not a conundrum? Oh, it would be to someone who doesn't understand the incredible depth of the oneness that all believers have with the Lord Jesus. You are so identified with the person of Jesus. You are so intricately related to the person of Jesus that when the Father puts His glory upon His beloved servant, Isaiah 42, and His eternal Son, that you get to participate in the glory of Almighty God, whom He said He would not give to another. Church, I don't have words beyond that to describe how amazing that is. But I do say this. When Jesus, as our great high priest, prays this prayer and then marches up the hill to Golgotha to pay the penalty for our sins and act as the ultimate and infinite high priest on our behalf to shed his blood so that we can be forgiven and to be drawn into fellowship with him and with the Father, what he is doing is nothing less than securing our participation in the infinite glory of Almighty God. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the desire of the Son as He prayed the night that He went to the cross. Let's go back and look at John 17. He, he then says again that there's a missional purpose to this. This intimacy, this oneness, this glory that I want them to have. He says, so that, verse 23, the world may know that you sent me and loved them, as love those who believed in me and who will believe in me, even as you loved me. And that's, church, since I've already kind of cited that, that uh, statement when the Father says, both at the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus, the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father is making that statement based upon the eternity that they have spent in communion with each other in eternity past. And he's making that statement based upon the humility that Jesus expressed in leaving heaven and coming to earth to take on frail humanity. And he's making that statement based upon the 
resolve that Jesus had to live as a human being and die as a sinner and to be buried as someone who deserved death. Okay, God is making that statement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And church, Jesus is now declaring that the Father loves you in the same way that he loves his son. He could say about you, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter whom I am well pleased. Wow. Okay. Verse 24, Father, I desire, I will, fellow, I will, I, I, I strongly desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. Now he's speaking in terms of accomplishment. He's thinking in terms of future eternal glory. I want them to be with me. I want them to see me. I want them to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. And so if earlier the glory was the glory of divine love, this is the glory of divine presence. This is the glory of divine power. This is the glory of divine beauty. This is the glory of divine regality, royalty. This is that glory in which myriads of angels and redeemed people will be surrounding the throne and they will be able to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty as their eyes behold. Behold this Savior whose face shines like the sun and who is remarkable in His appearance and unimaginable in His holiness. This is the glory that Jesus is referring to here. And He says, I want every one of them to both see it and to feel it and experience it for all eternity. That's what He wants for every person who believes in Him. And He goes on to say, O righteous Father, verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. They know because they were given eyes to see and ears to hear. And then once they had eyes to see and ears to hear, they saw the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the remarkable um, grace of Jesus upon sinners like you and me. And so as they looked at him, and as the song said, as they watched him walk on water and then also calm those same waters when that needed to happen, they could not but confess and believe that Jesus came from above and is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And Jesus says that's exactly what they've seen. Verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name. That is, your character, your attributes. And I will continue to make it known, not only as I walk up Golgotha, not only as I am raised from the dead, not only as I'm ascended into heaven, but I will make it known to them as their mediator, as I send the helper who bears witness to who I am and who you are in their hearts through the Holy Spirit, so that, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I 
in them. So this is what Jesus is and what he prays for in a nutshell right now. Note takers, here's the idea, the big one. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us to have oneness with God and each other so that the world will experience God's love and enjoy God's glory forever. I'll say it three times. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us to have oneness with God and with each other so that the world will experience God's love and enjoy God's glory forever. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us to have oneness with God and each other so that the world will experience God's love and enjoy God's glory forever. You could even tack on with us. He will enjoy, they will enjoy God's glory forever with us who are already in the church. We were the world, now we're in the church. You know, when the high priest would make intercession for Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, he would wear a, a plate over his chest and over his heart. And on that plate were 12 stones, each stone representing a tribe of the people of Israel. And symbolically, that high priest had the people of God on his what? His heart. This is the ultimate high priest who has me and you and all who would ever believe on his heart, pleading for us and for all who will believe in him in the future. There are three words that I think could summarize this prayer, at least this section of his prayer, and I would like to address each of those three words and then bring some instructions to you. The first word that I think summarizes this prayer is oneness, O-N-E-N-E-S-S. Oneness. We see not only the word one and the prayer for oneness in verse 21 and 22 and 23, but we see the description of oneness, kind of the nature of it, by all of those prepositions. Look down at the text again, church, and look at verse 21. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he talks about glory, and he says that they may be one even as we're one. And then look at verse 23, here does that preposition again. I in them, and you in me. And then that they may become perfectly one. And then all the way down at verse 26, he says, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
And that's why I want to say that there is, there is a, there, there's, it's, he's talking about unity. He's talking about um, togetherness. But more than that, church, he's talking about intimacy. He's talking about real abiding relationship and love. He's he's talking about something spiritual, something that is essentially invisible in in, in essence. I mean, you know, you can have have a a unity that is uh, temporal. You can even have a unity that is in some ways artificial. Maybe I should say superficial. I've been on plenty of teams. I've been in plenty of organizations. I've been a member of many clubs in which there was a sense, a real sense of unity because we all rallied around one particular desire or one particular goal or one particular affection or hobby, okay? And so no matter what it was, whether it was a hobby or a sport or a club, or, or a social cause, whatever it was, we rallied around that one, co- one, one cause. And we could all agree on that. And in agreeing on that, we had unity. We all worked in the same direction for that, that goal, that desire. But that's what we could call temporal unity. Not that it's not real, but we could call it superficial unity. Because if you were to delve deeper into the motivations, delve deeper into the desires and longings of each person's heart, either on that team or in that organization or on that club, you would find all kinds of motives, all kinds of desires that varied across the board, some selfish, some self-seeking, some glory-seeking, some finding some other um, angle to try to work as the reason that they were a part of this. But nonetheless, it was both temporary and superficial unity, though real nonetheless. And what Jesus is praying is for nothing less than a oneness of purpose, a oneness of heart, a oneness of desire, a oneness of fundamental reason for living. It is a oneness both by by desire and purpose and by experience and relationship. I hope that makes sense. Because, Because this is the thing, is that he's not just praying for vertical oneness. He's praying for that. He's longing for it. He's wanting every one of us to be so connected with Him and with His Father in relationship, in communion, in walking with Him through prayer, walking with Him through the, through the input of the Word of God, walking through with Him through meditation and relationship throughout the day, singing songs, praying prayers, meditating, listening to His voice, He's wanting that without question. And it starts there, but then He's wanting that vertical oneness to translate into what? Horizontal oneness. So that because we are all each in tune with and one with Him, we then are in tune with and one with each other. And when you have a oneness vertically, that translates into a oneness horizontally. 
where there is intimacy and love and grace and communion and joy in the presence of one another, that produces something very special, very winsome, and very effective that we're going to talk about in the second word. The second word is winsomeness. Winsomeness. You got oneness and then winsomeness. Weaved into this prayer for oneness is a winsomeness that he wants all of his believers to exude so that they will, the world, will in effect also be drawn to the church, drawn to the people of God. Look at verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus prays for the world to see and feel the union that the people of God have with God and with each other, and they will be drawn like a magnet to that intimacy and communion and love. That's his prayer. Now, I want to draw your attention to one reality under this heading winsomeness. Jesus prays for all those who will believe in him through the word of the apostles. Jesus does not pray that if possible, it may happen that a few people might believe in him through the word of the apostles. He states it as absolute fact that there are going to be people in the world who come to faith in Jesus through the word of the apostles. It is given. It's going to happen. It will happen. It's a fact. And as a matter of fact, if we broaden Jesus' testimony out to the rest of Scripture, we know that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation around the throne singing holy unto the Lord Jesus. And so this is what I want to tell you about our winsomeness. People will come to faith in Jesus. They will experience intimacy with Christ. They will be brought in and grafted in to the vertical oneness and horizontal oneness. And when we as a group of believers try to live our lives and have impact and we see very little fruit, let me just say, hang on. People will come to Christ. People will be saved. Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. All whom the Father has given Him will come to him. So, let us live out our vertical unity so that we can have horizontal unity in a winsome nature to the world. The third word is glory. Glory. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. To see my glory. Jesus did not come to planet Earth to merely give you fire insurance. And he didn't come to planet Earth merely to give you a better or more moral life. 
Jesus didn't come to earth so that your quality of life on earth will be better than the quality of life with people apart from Jesus. Now, all those are true. You're, you're not going to go to hell if you're a believer in Jesus. You are going to live probably more moral, that is, more righteous. And you are going to have a quality of life that is greater because you understand what life is all about. But the ultimate aim of Jesus is that you will experience divine glory for all eternity, such that not only do you behold Him, as His words here, see Him in His glory, but you experience Him in His glory. You participate in that glory for all eternity, and you'll never get bored or tired of that glory because there is an ever-increasing and ever-deepening understanding of the un believable, incredible nature of the greatness and glory of God who is triune. And that's what Jesus wants for you. And so, so often we can be inclined and tempted to have our eyes set so low and our, and our aim set so short that we only see what's in front of us. And in a prayer like this, Jesus is wanting us to see out and up for the very reason that we were created. It is not primarily for the here and now. It is primarily for the then and there. Because this is the thing. And church, please get this. The Father has so much love for His Son. It abounds in such increasing manner that He did not want it merely to be bound up singularly in His Son. He created the planet and all of the people in it so that those who would believe in His Son Jesus, He could share that abounding, increasing nature of that love with people like you and me so that the world could, could speak out and spell out and pronounce that the love of God is great. You understand that? That's the nature of the love of God ever-increasing, ever-deepening, spreading out through people like you and me so that it's not merely contained in heaven. All right, let me give you a few instructions. I will not elaborate on them very much. I think that the exposition has probably consumed a lot of the instruction. If you have a listening ear and a heart that wants to long after the, the communion with God and intimacy with God, but here are some instructions that you can meditate on this week. Number one, embrace the Father's love for you. Embrace the Father's love for you. So often in life, there can be a marked difference between the quality of love that a person gives to people based upon the kind of love that they've received growing up all the way into adulthood. A person who has been unconditionally loved by parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents and neighbors who has poured out, who has been poured out upon that person grace and mercy and there's a specialness to that, that kind of love. 
often can translate how they've been loved into a great love for other people. And then often, because of this world is broken, when people have been not loved, but have been abused and used and taken advantage of and manipulated and abandoned, those people, apart from the transforming power of Christ, don't know how to love. They don't know how to care for people. They can't do it with, with reckless abandon because they don't know the comfort of real love. If we ask the question, why do people in the body of Christ not love to the degree that they can and they should, it is very likely because they have not tasted the comforting, powerful, unconditional love of the Father for them. Because when you taste that love and you feel the embrace of the Father for you, that He loves you in the same nature and with the same quality that He loves His own beloved Son, then you've got a boatload of love to give to people. And so I want to tell you, more than anything else, embrace the Father's love for you. Press into the Father's love for you. Enjoy the Father's love for you. Because then you'll be able to give it. And until then, it'll be restrained, it'll be twisted, and church, it might even be perverted. Because if you have been manipulated and used, you might even inside the church of Jesus Christ, in the name of love, manipulate and use and twist because you don't know the Father's love. So, embrace the Father's love for you. Second, enjoy the Son's presence in you. Enjoy the Son's presence in you. Notice that preposition, in. Like He's in you. Through the Spirit. He is in you. Enjoy His presence in you. Celebrate His presence in you. Walk in His presence in you. I think we've said enough about that as we walk through the text, but just enjoy it through through taking in His Word, through praying through Him, through meditating on Him, through singing to Him. Enjoy it in a myriad of ways, but enjoy His presence. Third, express the oneness that belongs to you. Express the oneness that belongs to you. And you know what I mean by that. Like, just show and reveal and demonstrate the communion that you have vertically Horizontally, be what you are. Carry out what you already are in Christ in that oneness. Express it to the the people who are in covenant relationship with you, especially here at Redeemer Church. And finally, expect the glory that's awaiting you. Expect it. Expect the glory that's awaiting you. Long for it. Pray for it. Come, Lord Jesus, that I may see you, that I may be with you, that I may enjoy you, that I may 
shed this sinful life and this sinful flesh that I may take on your holiness and righteousness and that I may enjoy walking with you and talking with you in the beauty of your holiness for all eternity. Expect it. Long for it. Live for it. Embrace the Father's love. Enjoy the Son's presence. Expect, Express the oneness and expect the glory. Those would be my instructions to you based on John 17, 20 to 26. Father, we thank you for our great high priest Jesus. And we thank you for the depth and the amazing nature of this high priestly prayer. May his prayers be answered yes by you in Redeemer Church that we may have vertical and horizontal oneness and winsomeness to the world that you've put us in. Amen.